Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Johnny Dangerously is over. You know your name's an adverb? Well, Johnny's busted my chops for the last time. Gee, he looked like a terrific guy to me. <laughs> Oops. Michael Keaton, Joe Piscopo, Danny DeVito, Dom DeLuise, Peter Boyle, Griffin Dunn, Richard Dimitri, Ray Walston. See Johnny Dangerously at a selected theater near you. I knew somebody who went to a selected theater once. Once. Title song by Weird Al Yankovic. We're continuing our series of Coolidge and Heckerling and Associates 80s comedies. Brought to you by by the legal team at Coolidge, Hackerling, and Associates, Esquire. Associates are all Esquires. <laughs> you should know. Uh, we, just uh, I, I don't know why we decided to open up our 11th season with 80s comedies, but they do hit me right at home, right where it counts, Andy. Yes, and I found yes. myself laughing at this one. This was a film I watched a lot when I was young, and as I said in the first episode of this particular mm-hmm. series, this may be the film that I watched more than any of these when I was young, because uh, it was one of those movies that you watch at the right age, and it's a laugh a minute, and I still laughed 
all through the film. I had such a fun time revisiting this film, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. So I'm glad we're talking about it so that I could uh, check it out again. I feel like we have learned since we decided to put this on the list that there are a number of people who, one, ever didn't even know this movie existed, and two, saw it and didn't find it as funny as we find it. Yeah. yeah. I try not to hold that against them, but I can't, I can't promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it comes, I think, in that period where, you know, we were young and impressionable, and this is the sort of thing that, that impressed us, and we enjoyed it. And I, I, I do feel that Watching something like this when you never saw it when you were younger. And I mean, you know, there, we know there are films out there that still get made like this, where you watch it when you're young and it really clicks with you and you watch it a lot, but you watch it when you're older and you're just like, hmm, I don't know what people are seeing in this thing. So, yeah. So the, m- much of what I'm laughing at, I have to acknowledge, is laughing at me as a, you know, 15 year old laughing at this movie. You're laughing okay. with you, Pete. You're not laughing at you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That kid was a doofus. <laughs> it is comedy taste. Mwah. Yeah. Yeah. It is just perfect. Uh, and so that's where we begin. Number three, Coolidge, Heckerling, 80s comedy. That's right. Johnny Dangerously is rated PG-13 for some strong sexual references and brief violence. want to watch this movie and uh you want to you want to help us out like if you if you feel like hey i'm i'm the kind of sort that watches along with the movie while i'm uh while i'm listening to the podcast or maybe listen to the podcast immediately after i watch the movie you could do that and you can help us out uh anytime you see an apple uh, tv or amazon link in the show notes directly to this movie uh that's an affiliate link and if you rent or buy the movie through those uh sources we get a little bit. We get a little taste, a little bit off the top, a little vig. Get a little bit, and uh, that—that's it. If you don't, that's fine. We have a just watch link in there too. That'll take you to the movie where you can find it in other sources. And right now, we are upping our game over in the merch store. We've decided we're going to put a lot of new product in there. Uh, you know, at least one per series that we're going to be doing through season eleven. We already have something up for this particular series. We have our our Coolidge Heckerling and Associates uh, comedy and film shirt. And you can get it on sticker or mug or mask or pillow. I mean, all sorts of things. So uh, we're going to be getting more stuff up there. So keep checking it out. Uh, It's a fun way to kind of, you know, support the show and, you know, wear some of the the cool stuff that we're putting out there. (laughs) Where do you get a 26 by 26 pillow with your testicles and you on it emblazoned? (laughs) Who doesn't want that? You're gonna you're gonna love resting your head at night with a with that pillow, aren't you? Oh, uh, that's right. You can learn you can learn more and see what we have over at TrueStory.fm/tnrmerch. You'll notice some changes in our feeds. If you haven't done this already, uh, you can still subscribe to the True Story uh, Master Feed, but we all have all of our different True Story uh, entertainment uh, feeds separated. If you just want to subscribe to The Next Reel or Trailer Rewind or any of the shows that we that we do, uh, you can subscribe to them separately. Just search for True Story FM or uh, one of those shows in your favorite podcast directory, and they will be there. Uh, and be on the lookout. You know, make sure you read the titles because we're changing a lot of artwork in the process. And so some things may not look the way they used to look. So uh, keep a weather eye on the horizon for new logos. More new stuff, too. Uh, we're going to actually start featuring some audio reviews from you, our wonderful listeners. If you just email us a 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm, 
Once you watch the film, send it to us. Try to do it, you know, before uh, we record, which is at least a few weeks before uh, the show is actually released. Get it sent to us, and you just might end up on the show. And anyone who's a fan of Letterboxd, check out our HQ page. HQ means what? High quality. Headquarters. Human quotient. Yep, all of those things are true at Letterboxd.com. If you really like Letterboxd like we do, and you want to get a discount on your pro or patron membership, you can just visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd, and uh, you'll uh, it'll automatically apply the code to you and put you on that page, and it will calculate a 20% discount on either one of those tiers of Letterboxd membership. Removes all the ads. It's just, Letterboxd is just, it's just better. It's better when you are a subscriber, and it works for renewals as well. So if you've got a renewal coming up, thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. Hey, you know what? It is time, everybody, for our annual questionnaire. All right, Hasn't really been annual. In fact, I think we've only done it once in all this time. But hey, it's aspirational. We're hoping we'll get to a point where we're doing it annually. Regardless, we want to learn more about you, your listening habits, what you like and don't like, all of that good stuff. If you just head to thenextreel.com, you will see a big questionnaire button. Just click it, fill it out. We appreciate the help. To top it off, one lucky listener who fills out the full questionnaire will actually get a full free year of membership. That is an exciting perk. So uh, make sure you click on that and fill it out today. What is this membership thing you're introducing to us right now for mm. the first time? Because we never listen to ads. What is this? <laughs> what is this you might be saying to yourself? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We we need your support. We don't sell your info. We don't run a lot of ads. We're not part of the uh, of the 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 mechanism that tracks your uh, listening habits in exchange for uh, your ad dollars. Uh, instead, we just ask you to become a member if you like the show. Members can vote on our weekly Saturday matinee polls to choose the list topic based on the movie that we are talking about this week. If you were already a member, you could have voted on the list topic for Johnny Dangerously already. Members also get early access to every episode, and they also get, oh my God, so many bonus episodes. So many. This year, y'all, it's almost as many bonus episodes as public episodes. And they're just full of swearing and <laughs> terrible jokes. And just, it's, we really, we work blue in the bonus episodes. Wouldn't you say we're awful people? It's, it's worth listening to. <laughs> it's like listening to Danny Vermin the whole time. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's also a, a monthly member bonus episode that actually fills in a gap from one of our previous series or current series. And there's a monthly flick chart re-ranking episode. We're adding in new members only episodes at the end of each series. That's good, called the retake, where we actually talk through what we gleaned from the films in that particular series. Members also get to vote on what we'll be talking about in all of those member bonus episodes. But wait, there's more. Members can watch the live streams as we record the shows and can even access the live streams from previous shows anytime they want. Members get extra super secret members-only channels in our Discord community. And now members also get stickers. That's right. We will be mailing all of our members a couple stickers from our merch store. Just another way to say thank you for all of your support. You know what you can do with those stickers? You can watch the live stream. But if you don't really want to watch our heads, you can just put a sticker on your computer. Right over it our totally face. comes off afterward. We swear. <laughs> it does. Don't do that. We are not. The team at the next reel is not responsible for your reckless endangerment of your computer. The best thing of all, though, you don't have to listen to us. 
spout all of this every <laughs> single time. That's it right, really is it. worth it. <laughs> it really is worth it. Head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about our membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. The big questions. Andy, it's time for the big questions. Mm, We have big questions with this film because this film is the sort of film that when you watch it, you are filled with so many big questions about the universe, about life itself. Are you? Are you? Are you, though? Weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think this question, I I think this is one of those questions that um, or one of those films that is. Uh, we said it in the beginning like if you're if you're hit if you have that sort of you're in the mode for this sort of spoof movie then it'll hit you just right i think i think but but it takes a very special sort of of tweak now uh one of the things that i thought was really interesting about this movie is that it comes at a time where we've already seen some great spoof movies i mean we we already had airplane um you know what i mean and mel brooks had been working for a while already yeah yeah and, and mel brooks and like all of these things and so you know to hear the team talk about making this movie you hear them really understand that it's a challenge because you're not like it it's a challenge to surprise audiences right at at this point because and and moving it into this gangster uh kind of universe you got to ask yourself how well does this movie this parody film stand up yeah that's a great question and you know i suppose it it it's worth saying okay well what what stands out and what makes them stand out, right? I mean, Mel Brooks, I you know mentioned, had been around already. We talked about The Producers, which mm-hmm. came out in the late 60s, and that really kind of set him off doing this sort of film all through the 70s and beyond. And you brought up Airplane. I mean, the, the Zucker uh, Abrams team had been doing these sorts of films also, and, and were continuing to kind of crank these out. And they're very funny. And I guess the goal with the, these types of films is, you know, you cr- you throw in as many jokes as possible, visual gags, uh, actual mm-hmm. jokes, meta jokes. I mean, they're they're all over the place, and you just hope that you you know you're getting a laugh every you know five or six jokes or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, but I mean, but this definitely is a parody. I mean, we're looking at kind of parodying some of these uh, gangster films from the 30s. So, I mean, what what makes it work when you're kind of doing more of a parody of these other types of films? Yeah, I you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. And and the reason, you know, it all comes back to why I love movies like Airplane and Naked Gun and Blazing Saddles. And and you know, these are are movies that take the universe that they're building and they sort of collide it into the modern sort of universe. And so you have things like, you know, in in this film, you have things like bumper stickers that say, I'd rather be stealing, right? Those sorts of sort of contextual conflicts, right? We would never expect those kinds of things in this universe. Those That is a thing that makes it funny. Uh, I, I think that these movies or this movie does it well where it falls short against something like Mel Brooks. And when Mel Brooks is at his very best, it's because Mel Brooks is leveraging 
questions of race and religion and, and, you know, persecution all through jokes, right? And makes you stop and think, oh my God, what did I just watch? I just watched somebody who was really, really willing to take some risks with his comedy that I don't think Johnny Dangerously takes as heavily, as bravely. I still find it incredibly funny, but the movies that stand out for me and possibly why Johnny Dangerously is not remembered uh, in the annals of this kind of category uh, is because it's not quite as brave. Uh, that's a great point, because I think there is something about um, when you are making these. I, I think that the bravery of of using it as an opportunity to to pull apart what those the the films you're parodying had been doing in a smart way where you're looking at stuff like race and you're looking at things and and this film like yeah what are they are they trying to say anything about kind of what the gangster films in the 20s and or in the 30s had been saying about gangsters in the 20s and 30s are they really is this film actively trying to say anything or is it really just here for laughs and i think it's just here for laughs and to that end it's funny but yeah it's not mm-hmm. It's not hitting high trying to uh, trying to actually say anything more about those films. And I mean, this film is, you know, it is a, a I would say it still is a loving kind of homage and parody to films like The Roaring Twenties, Manhattan Melodrama, Scarface, The Public Enemy, White Heat. Those are all films that are referenced uh, as films that had been part of what they were looking at in this particular film. But I don't think it is saying anything about kind of what those films might have been saying about the gangsters of the era. And we talked about the Roaring Twenties on the show in our 1939 series, looking at how uh, that film was looking at the era and how when you were putting these gangster characters up on pedestals, as they often were, the Hayes Code said, you know, you can't have a film end on a happy ending with a gangster, right? And mm-hmm. that was that was very much of the time. You had to, if he, if he was going to succeed and do great things over the course of the film, he still had to end up dying at the end, or it had to have a tragic ending, because you could not have these types of characters succeed. That was very much part of what they had to do, you know, in order to make these films, period. So when you're looking at something like this film and how they chose to write it and tell it, if they were kind of taking that Mel Brooks or the smarter way to parody a film and pay homage and do a send up of it, that could have been an element that they could have brought in and found a way to kind of add in to that with this particular film. But they're not. Again, they're they're just not hitting trying yeah. to, to to hit that level. Well, and I think you you know we bring up uh, Mel Brooks in uh, you know complimenting Blazing Saddles as one of these movies. I don't think we can you know leave out Men in Tights. Right? <laughs> he's not at his best in Men in Tights. He's he's not <laughs> his best in Men in Tights. It's a movie that doesn't end up saying anything, and partly because of this, like going for the the joke, laugh a minute kind of experience, and not having uh and and having just sort of empty calories in the third act. I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about the change they made in the the finale of this movie because of the kids and what the kids wanted to see. I think the longevity of this movie might have been uh, something more to celebrate had they actually killed Johnny in the end of the movie as they'd intended to. And and the way it was written, it was an eight-minute death scene, a comedic death scene, but because of the way the movie had handled guns and bullets and violence and getting shot and accidental shootings and all kinds of shootings, 
to have our principal character die at the end actually gives a movie, a comedy movie like this, a little bit of substance. And as it is, it loses the substance. I feel like the ending of this is it ends on an absolute whimper. As much as I laughed through the entire movie, watching him walk out of the pet store and talking, you know, after making a crime doesn't pay kids kind of a lesson, but actually most of the time it does and get into this fancy car is is not the right message to for for this movie. I think it would have been better had we had given been given something to think about. Well, and that yeah, that would have made it a smarter a smarter film, right? It's interesting because I, I think this film came out at a time where it was really uh, it needed to hit a few different things. I mean, Michael Hertzberg initially he had been first AD with Mel Brooks on the producers, and then he came on board to produce. The 12 Chairs, Blazing Saddles, and Silent Movie. So he already kind of was in with kind of that sense of comedy, working with Mel Brooks and everything. He didn't continue working with him, but he certainly was still here working for Fox. The problem was, and this could be why they made, they felt it was absolutely necessary to make this change. I'm just speculating here, but 20th Century Fox was having a terrible, terrible year this particular year. And this was one of the films that they that we they were relying on to actually make them some money. And it's entirely possible that the people at the studio said, you know what, it needs uh, an end that the kids are going to like, because this has to bring us money because we've had a tough year. I can totally see that happening. You know, I haven't heard it, but it makes sense, right? It makes sense that this was one of those changes that they said, you know what, we can't bank on um, a smarter ending. We need to bank on something that's going to be fun. That's going to leave the kids wanting to come back and watch it over and over again. Ugh, boo, <laughs> dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very frustrating, and I think it's it's counter to the primary sort of theme of the movie. And uh, I I think you know this the the whole crime pays message uh, isn't funny for very long it only pays a little (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so anyway right up to the end lots of gags yeah so but that's interesting to me because i i i you know i i really wish that this film had been released in a better uh way so that we actually had access to that deleted uh alternate ending because i would love to see how it worked because it feels like it it almost would have to have happened outside the pet shop, like outside of that storyline. Because if it had happened earlier in the film, then that would mean the entire pet shop framing device of the movie would have had to be removed because you couldn't, it wouldn't fit anymore. You know, speaking of framing devices, Andy, mm. you know, this is when where Lin-Manuel Miranda got the idea for In the Heights. It's practically a remake. <laughs> uh, who who yeah. would be the piragua guy? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's totally the Pope. Of course it is. Of course it's the Pope. (laughs) There's a there is a parallel for everybody. Uh, Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. It it would not have worked otherwise. And so but I think it could actually have been really funny. Right. Walk out of the of the pet shop where you think crime pays and suddenly it really, really doesn't. Right. Like that is a great bit of punctuation on the end. And and I think it I, I think it totally works. What do you think? What what do you think of the treatment of these actors? When Keaton walks in 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 the the pet shop and he says, anybody hungry? And he's wearing the makeup. How well does that work in a color film? You know, it's it's funny 
you see these actors wearing kind of that heavier eye makeup that that 20s and 30s actors would wear in films it's kind of funny to see how they look and in a weird way i i don't know i guess i settle into it pretty quickly but it is something that you definitely notice <laughs> like hmm I, okay i i guess it's an interesting direction to take with it you know and i i it's in i don't know i guess in the level of the comedy it kind of works but it's it's tricky because they're doing these send-ups of movies that were i mean the roaring 20s was released like 44 45 years before this film was so it does make you wonder how much people are really kind of uh remembering how those films looked you know and if people are just like huh they everyone looks a little weird in this movie who's thinking everybody looks weird in the movie the people who made this movie no 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 the, like the kids who are going to see the movie who have no frame of reference for what this film is spoofing this isn't like you know um scary movie spoofing the scream franchise it, that came out yeah. you know within 10 years of right. the initial film this is like almost 5 decades later this film comes out and i mean i had never seen the roaring 20s or any of those gangster films then again i don't know how much i was really noticing eye makeup when i went to see this but now when i look at it if had i not already kind of seen those films i might be going i don't understand why these people look that way yeah and you can but one of the things that's that i i think so is lost in this movie is that the intention of the eye makeup is completely lost in a color film, right? Like you look at, go go look at stills of Cagney in, in movies. You can see when you look closely that it's the eye makeup underneath his eyes, but in black and white, it actually keeps his eyes from disappearing on his face when brightly lit. Like you, you need to have that sort of texture on the face because that's how it's shot. Um, you don't have that here. And I think it, instead it just makes Keaton look weird. Uh, and I think for me, it's really, only Keaton. I don't have the same problem with Piscopo. Uh, it, it's funny. I think the only character I really notice it on is Danny DeVito, and weirdly, it ends up working for his character, as we yeah, as totally. we find out. Oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, you know, I I don't know. Is I that guess... is that actually the punchline to just a really long gag? Like we <laughs> need to be. see Keaton in it just to see the payoff with DeVito. Maybe five minutes it. later. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Well, I don't care for it, uh, but I, I, it's, it's a Casablanca problem. You know, I don't think about it all that much. When I do, I, I don't like it. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, generally, though, I think they actually, per, the performances, the 20s performances are actually very funny. And I think they're, you know, when they break character uh, in order to, you know, bring the anachronism to life, uh, I, I think it's it makes it very funny because generally they are um, allegiant to the period and, and it works for me. And they're clearly, I, the thing that I enjoy about it is these people are all clearly having a fun time with it and they're enjoying kind of that that spoof nature of it and playing these gags. I, and I think it largely works quite well. Yeah. I, you know, I, I enjoy seeing stuff that really feels of the era, like having his mom kind of the, the Irish mother with all the ailments you know, and stuff like that. Like it just feels so stereotypical of this type of story. Right. But then like the gags with the doctor and how he's always trying to fix quote, fix these these new ailments that she keeps having. I mean, it's funny. And and they find ways to take these elements from those films and uh, just bring them to life in different and uh, 
comedic ways. Part of part, one of the scenes I wanted to to clip in here was the w- when he goes. He's as an adult. He goes back to his mom and he opens the door and and she's you know she's ironing. She, she says, "I'm a year behind on my cleaning." So, ma, what's new? Well, me arthritis. That's new. And then one of the muscles in me calf is shriveling up. Also, I'm losing sensation in the left side of my face, which I think is the beginning of a neurological disorder. But the rest of me is in the pink. Ma, you gotta take better care of yourself. I don't want you living like this. I don't want you doing other people's laundry. What are you saying? Give up me career? Well, maybe you ought to retire. Enjoy the golden years, Ma. Not do this. But he opens the closet and it doesn't work for a podcast because the visual gag of the mountain of clothes that falls down on him is is such a sight gag. But it really is perfect. And um, it, it is at once childish. And yet, as an adult, I find myself still laughing at it. The pile of clothes. It's every bit something I might find on like Nickelodeon uh, circa 1998. Yeah, people like watching things fall on people <laughs> people love watching things fall on people that's absolutely true so those kinds of things work really well and and i think that you know maureen stapleton is a gem why did she do this movie she's so good but why maureen it's I, hey she, she's in the money pit she clearly was choosing to take a lot of just kind of fun yeah. goofy films at this point in her career and i love her all the more for it this is a woman who has oh my god she has a good time on screen <laughs> oh, the 20s. This sucks. <laughs> uh, just uh, And she she really works in the comedy veins of playing those laughs that uh, feel very anachronistic, like when she pulls the vibrator out, when she has the line when she's talking to uh, Mary Lou Henner, and she says, you know, I've grown so close to you since you've been been with Johnny, <laughs> and I just wanted to tell you something. I go both ways. Like, you know, you just don't expect that sort of thing out of uh, Maureen Stapleton. It just, it worked so well. I, I love when she's given these sorts of uh, of bits. She's brilliant. So th- all of that kind of stuff works for me. I think the, um, uh, you know, all of the the character sight gags, the, the when Johnny comes home to the neighborhood and all the people come are screaming at him you know johnny johnny i love you so much will you be my first johnny and then the old lady slides down the drain pipe like those bits are are they they make this movie i think they're just very very funny anything that takes you out of context is just another thing that makes this movie work yeah a lot of great meta gags a lot of great great um fourth wall breaking in all of these sorts of situations that work really well that's actually a funny scene uh when Johnny comes home to the neighborhood and is is talking to everybody and this this speaks to kind of this this I guess part of this is a little bit of the the homage to some of the films of the era where this is a guy who's living both sides of the law at home he is known as Johnny Kelly and but he really is this gangster Johnny Dangerously weirdly everyone in the neighborhood knows he's Johnny Dangerously. It's only his mom and brother who have no idea. And so that's why he has to have this little talk with the people in the neighborhood. Hey, remember, here, I'm Johnny Kelly. As for me, every chance I got, I returned to the old neighborhood. They looked up to me there like I was some kind of folk hero. I love Johnny T-shirts! I love Johnny! Johnny, can I follow in your footsteps? Sure, kid. Here. 
burning a hole in my pocket. Look, Rosie, it's Johnny Dangerously. Mrs. Zimmer, everybody, over here. All right, now what did I tell all you neighborhood people? Around here, you're Johnny Kelly, a law-abiding nightclub owner. Not the notorious gangster Johnny Dangerously. Sure, and I'm the Pope. Hey, Pope, how'd you know? Oh, Johnny, everybody knows, except your mother and your brother. And as far as we're concerned, nobody's going to say nothing. Thanks, Your Holiness. I'll tell you what, go get yourself a new gym at the Vatican, eh? <laughs> now, speaking of Johnny Kelly, Andy, a point of controversy that I hope we can settle here once and for all. Was Sylvester Stallone ever targeted to play <laughs> the role that Keaton plays in this movie? You know, it's funny because uh, apparently there had been rumors that Stallone uh, had been in talks to play the role. But according to the producer, it was completely false. There was uh, never any speculation that, that Stallone had been approached at all. But the weird thing is, and this is the strange little bit of history that makes me think, hmm, were they really considering Stallone at some point? When you <laughs> I know, look- it's like, here it is. We're completely settled. It's settled. There is no more value in arguing the point at all <laughs> until you watch the movie. Until you watch the movie and you see the police sketch of Johnny Dangerously in the newspaper, and it looks exactly like Sylvester Stallone. It's Stallone! It is so weird. It's like, maybe that's why there was rumor that Stallone had yeah. done it, because the, the person who did the sketch for the, the prop department was is looking a at the huge wrong actor. Sly fan, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, I, I thought there was room, because I watched the Keaton interview. Let, that Bobby, uh, Bobby Wygant was mm-hmm. uh, for KXAS TV reporter during this, this time. She's got a legendary archive. It's hard to find behind the scenes conversations about this movie. Uh, but she, uh, all of her, uh, interviews, the raw interviews, uh, were all back in uh, or up on YouTube. And so I watched the one with Keaton first and she asked him, was Stallone or Sean Connery, were they ever, um, uh, approach to do this part and he says no i don't think so i don't think what do you think you think they would have done a good job you know and and goes off on his thing he's got a little bit of robin williams in him in this this period uh on his tv interviews so i thought well maybe you could watch that and think okay i guess there, there's room for the rumor but then herzog says yeah i i would know and the answer is absolutely not he was not approached i'm the producer of the movie and, and you should clarify it's not herzog <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a totally different version of this film. You're right. That would be oh Hertzberg. Did I say Herzog? <laughs> now I want to see the Werner Herzog version of Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> there would be more penguins. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think Werner Herzog also agreed that Stallone was never approached, is what I'm trying to tell you. But now I think that we should start the rumor that Herzog actually wanted Stallone to be... <laughs> <laughs> a gear of the wrath of God. <laughs> you heard it here first, it folks. Would have been a very different movie. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, it's settled, not settled. Settled, not the whole settled thing. science. There it is. 
Mary Lou Henner is a dream. I love her so much. She is so talented, and I did not know much about her uh, because I knew her really only as uh, Taxi, where she was just wonderful. And that sort of growing up with my parents watching that show, it was one of their very favorite shows. Uh, and so she was she was just great, only to find out that, you know, she is quite a musical theater uh, maven. She has a number of shows uh, on Broadway and just off Broadway. She originated the character of Marty in Greece before it moved to Broadway and then jumped back on the touring cast so that she could work with Travolta, who was duty in the touring cast of Greece. Uh, she did uh, Over Here and Pal Joey in Chicago and Social Security and The Tale of the Elegist Wife. And she's she, and so when she shows up here and you hear people say, oh, my gosh, Mary Lou Henner can sing. Well, uh, yeah, she can really, really sing, does all of her own stuff, of course, and she is great at it. I think she's fantastic. Can I let you in on a little secret? She's your aunt. I have never seen an episode of Taxi. What? It was never in the staple of shows that we watched. I never I would it. have believed that she is your aunt. <laughs> More First, than that, huh? Andy, what? <laughs> Yeah, it just was never on. We never, I, I've never seen it. Oh my God. I know who's in it. I know all about it. I just have never watched the show. That is, oh, Andy <laughs> Kaufman as Latka Gravis is it legendary. It's legendary. It's so great. It's such a great show. Yeah. I hope it's still a great show. Oh, now that I'm saying all that. <laughs> And because, of course, we also had DeVito in that show, and, that, and he's also great. Yeah, great, yeah. great, great. And we will be able to talk about Mary Lou Henner later this season because she's in Between the Lines, which will be yeah. one of the films in our journalist series. Yes, yes, yes. Well, she's she's a treasure. I had a, had a great time with her. But uh, the whole cast, uh, obviously, DeVito and Henner and, and uh, Griffin Dunn, uh, once again, uh, Dean, I remind you, Griffin Dunn and I went to the same high school. At different times. At different times. <laughs> Griffin Dunn's always great. It's very funny to see him in this sort of sex-crazed role. Uh, I yeah. think, I don't know, he just cracks me up. I'm so glad we waited. I don't want to wait anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Your testicles and you. Oh, oh my boy. God. Please, Dr. Zillman, teach me more about my testicles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just crazy, just crazy. Yeah, we can't yes. we can't go too far though without talking about Joe Piscopo who plays the uh, the main antagonist in the film Danny Vermin. Obviously, we have Maroni, uh Richard Dimitri as kind of an early antagonist, but it's really Danny Vermin who kind of ends up being our antagonist in the film. And Joe Piscopo, this role cemented him in my head as this person, like this character. Like I know him as Danny Vermin because yeah. I, I watched this film so much. I think this is probably the first time I ever saw him ever before anything with Saturday Night Live. And I just, I don't know. I just find him so funny in this character, in this role, because of things like my my father shot me once. Once, you know, just like once. that sort of stuff. I just, I love it. He's got, he's got so many great lines in the movie. What was your experience with Piscopo on uh, SNL? Did you have it? Did you see much SNL of his? Not until later, like in in clip shows. Like I never yeah. saw him at the time. I I wasn't watching SNL probably till high school, and it, it would have just been things that I saw like when they were doing their clip shows, things like that. So that's yeah. that's really it for me. He was on um, SNL from eighty to eighty four, and 
you know, he did a lot of stuff with uh, Eddie Murphy and they traveled together. There, there was some controversy around him and Eddie Murphy that got him some some press, maybe just enough negative press that, um, you know, as Eddie Murphy's career took off, that he was, um, you know, able to leverage that where Piscopo did not. He, he was known for his characters like uh, the hypochondriac uh, horse to Eddie Murphy's Gumby. He was pokey. Pokey the horse, that was a, a big one. He was uh, the Little Rascals, uh, Froggy. Uh, he was in that character. He was always sort of the second guy to Eddie Murphy's stuff. He had some of his original characters. He did some great impressions, right? He does a fantastic Jerry Lewis impression, and uh, Phil Donahue was a big one for him. I I, I really, I, I like Joe Piscopo. I, it, I love him in this movie. I think he's very funny, and playing the thug is just right up his alley. Um, and and then there's the question, what happened to Joe Piscopo? Like, where yeah. did he go right. as it happens? He did some other stuff. He went on and he did Wise Guys with Danny DeVito. Uh, and he's got this, uh, I think this radio drive time show. He He's a Jersey guy. And when Trump got the nomination, he said, hey, maybe 2016, I need to run for office as as uh, uh, in, in sort of the family. And uh, he never never ended up doing that. But my hunch is he's he is um, he's kind of gone down a, a different path and don't see a lot of him. He was also a hard body, too. He got way into bodybuilding and ended up looking great. I think the last thing that he really did was like he was a, a guest appearance on like a Law and Order SVU episode. Um, I don't think he's really kind of done much. Not else. much. Yeah. They yeah. said they. They uh, uh, said he was a big steroid user and got thyroid cancer and right, yeah. um, all, all of those he he denies fervently. But, you know, it's sad because he's a talent and I think yeah. he's very funny and I would like to see him as he sort of matures into that sort of a talent now. But maybe he just didn't have it in him. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Who knows? It is fun seeing people that were kind of in the spoof circles already with Mel Brooks, uh, like mm-hmm. Peter Boyle and Dom DeLuise popping up in the movie. I, I thought they both are clearly having fun here, even though Dom DeLuise is barely in it. Yeah, I mean, is it Dom DeLuise or uh, Dick Butkus? Which, which one do you think gets more just, are we counting in terms of straight frames? <laughs> well, Dick, Dick Butkus definitely gets more uh, more time and more lines. <laughs> It's very funny because, yeah. I mean, he's always driving, right? It's just uh, that's right. I guess he's he's driving. He's yeah. right. Yeah. We only have uh, uh, the Pope in that one scene just as a joke. It's purely a joke. Yeah. But that's what's fun about the fact that they are doing this with this movie where they get Dom DeLuise to come in just for a sight gag for one joke. And that's it. That's the mm-hmm. only time he's in the film. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I, I love that Heckerling does things like that and also brings in people like, you know, we have Ray Walston and uh, Schiavelli back from Fast Times, kind of in, I mean, in much yes. smaller parts. Schiavelli, definitely. I mean, he's not even credited. He's just kind of a, he's Maroney's building planner. But uh, the stuff with Walston, though, I mean, that's kind of funny. It's it's an interesting bit, though, because uh, he's a newspaper vendor on the corner. And it's there's a gag that's played out over the course of the film where, you know, he's selling papers. And the, the people come by to deliver, you know, a stack of papers to him and hit him in the head. The first time he's blind and now he can see. The second time he gets hit again and now he goes deaf. The third time he gets hit again, he can hear again, but he has amnesia. He has no idea who he is. I actually found a little note that uh, that said, you know, this was kind of a weird trend in 80s comedies that was linking disability to humor. 
Now, I, I mean, I'm a juvenile person. I did find it funny. But when you think about it in context, uh, especially today, how it's become much more relevant to note these sorts of things, um, it is something that is kind of pointing, pointing this thing out about, you know, this idea of gags playing on somebody's disabilities. Uh, and so just a point. It is a point, and And it's a point that you, you kind of have to recognize, I think, that there was a period we went through where... We did not know yet to that there was reason to to steer clear of these kinds of jokes, right? right that right. that there were people who were hurt by these kinds of jokes. We didn't know that until we started making these kinds of jokes. And this movie is an artifact of of that in in some respects. It is not the worst of them, I don't think. Oh, I think there's uh, far more egregious not, films than certainly this. Certainly not the worst defender, but <laughs> uh, but but it's in there, and it's you know, it is a thing. Yeah. Uh, Ray Walston, though, my goodness, that guy. What's fun is like he clearly enjoys being in these sorts of comedies too. I mean, he's having fun, you know, and I, I yeah, love seeing that. Truly. What, what do you think about Amy Heckerling now? Because we're, we're talking about Heckerling and Coolidge and their '80s comedies. This is a very different movie than Fast Times. Oh, oh, very different. I, you know, I found an essay uh, called "Images and Women." Robin Wood had written it. Um, it was in a kind of a collection, and largely she's talking about Heckerling in relation to Fast Times in a collection of other women that she's talking about. Um, and she only references as a footnote, Johnny dangerously because it had literally like just come out right before the, the essay came out. So she only had time to insert it as a footnote. And this is what she said. Johnny dangerously has appeared just in time for a footnote, which alas, it barely deserves. Heckerling has allowed herself to be absorbed temporarily. One hopes into a comic mode that derives from TV Saturday Night Live is the most obvious influence, in which a woman's discourse is quite obliterated, and the film proves no more than that women can make movies that are just as bad as most of those made by men. Huzzah! Dang! You've come a long way, baby! <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, way to go, Heckerling. <laughs> You're right up there with the best of them, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess. Mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I guess to that point, I... You know, people make all varieties of films. And I think just because a woman is making a film doesn't mean that it has to be a feminist, you know, voice or anything like that. And it doesn't have to be a serious film that is actually saying something. I think it's fine for her to make this movie. I think it is a very funny movie. I mean, it, as we've already talked about, it may not be kind of at that smart parody type of level, but I think she's having fun. And that, that was my read on it. I think it is a lot of fun. I think it's funnier than Fast Times for me. I laugh a lot at this movie where in places where I don't laugh at Fast Times. Uh, and, and I like the look. There are a couple of things that uh, that I'm curious about her choice as a director and if the, the elements work for you. And the, the one we've already joked about, Dr. Zillman and, and the uh, the film class footage, the your testicles and you, um, at, at this point, uh, Griffin's Dunn character is, uh, you know, he's the DA and he's having trouble. And so his big brother says, here, I'm going to show you this video so you can get a sense on why it's why you want to have sex so much and what you need to what why you need to stay in law school and, uh, you know, wait right. and get married and all that. Right. Because his brother wants to drop out of law school just so he can get married, just so he can have sex. Yeah. And so we take this little side trip and they show this brief video takes us out of the film. We should play a clip. Of course we should play a <laughs> clip. Uh, uh, intern, roll the clip. Your testicles and you. Take a good look 
These are the unlucky ones. These unfortunate souls are suffering from ESS, enlarged scrotum syndrome. For these poor devils, it's too late. But there is hope. Here at the Atlanta Genital Institute, teams of doctors are at work around the clock to cure this dreaded affliction. Hi, I'm Dr. Zillman, and I'd like to talk to you about your testes. The human testicle is not unlike a balloon. Sometimes it is empty. And sometimes it is full. And sometimes it can explode. Maybe this will help you understand. Just remember that your testicles, when treated with love and care, will give you years of maintenance-free service. But if abused, well, the inevitable conclusion. So next time, do the smart thing. Don't let anything come between your testicles and you. Thank you. Now, that is one example of coming, of taking us out of the movie and bringing us into another space. There is another one that sticks out to me, which is the um, uh, Danny DeVito in the restaurant. And it's a joke that I don't, I don't know if it works because of how it was, it was put in the movie. Uh, so they're having drinks. We, we know that Johnny dangerously has invited DeVito, who's the current DA. He's the current DA and he's on the take. He has to have him yeah. killed. And so how he orchestrates that is that he invites him for drinks. Danny DeVito is, uh, starts coming on to him. So you realize that Danny DeVito is, has a secret, uh, lots of secret, you know, identity issues that he's hiding. And then Johnny gives him a bright red smoking jacket wrapped in a box with a big bow. And then a bull comes crashing through. Johnny stands up and leaves, says he has to go make a call. A bull comes crashing through the, the wall while DeVito is holding the bright red smoking jacket and then we cut, hard cut to a newspaper headline, the DA is killed in a commercial. Yeah. So now we were in a commercial the whole time. I I did not get that. And I found it, for me, the weakest, the single weakest part of the film, because I, I wasn't like, what, a commercial? What are they talking about? Yeah. And the whole thing with the gift and the red the red smoking jacket being kind of the red flag he's waving that draws the yeah. bull to attack him and stuff, which also is like, um, okay, why is that the route you're going to go to, to take, take him out? It seems like there's probably a better way to do it. And then it also ties into the idea that, okay, so did he know that he was gay? Cause he certainly doesn't act like he knew that no. he was gay, but he had this gift for him wrapped up. Like it was giving him something. It just, it felt like they were, it felt like they didn't write this in a way that ever made sense. And I don't think Heckerling ever quite figured out how to direct this joke because it, it really fell completely flat for me. The only way I can rationalize it is that there are a number of, of little jabs at the press, at the media. And one of them that I think works really well is when Maroney is deported to Sweden, claims he's not from there. Like that headline is fantastic. And 
and and it's a it's a good joke at the expense of of the media and headline writers and all that. And I think that it's possible that they're trying that the whole setup joke dies in a commercial is at the expense of a bad press. Yeah. And for me, if I think about this as a movie that is also at some level trying to take down the media uh, of the day, the sensationalist sort of muckraking headlines, um, maybe that's a way that the joke could could kind of play, that this was an assassination by Bull and actually um, the media only got that it was, you know, their level of depth of reporting was, oh, my gosh, it was a commercial. Uh, But it just doesn't it doesn't play. I can't recall, but it does make me wonder, was there a bullfighter commercial in the 70s, 80s that actually had been of the era and it would have made more sense? And this perhaps becomes the most dated joke in the film. I am almost sure that you're right. I mean, I know Colt 45 malt liquor had a bullfighting commercial in 1970 and it was just, you know, bull you know, hitting a guy in a, maybe this is what it's from. You know, the, the guy is sitting at a table and he's waiting for his beer to be delivered and the bull tears his table apart, but the guy sits back up and drinks his drink. <laughs> and the, the matador is the waiter carrying the glasses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't understand that commercial at all. I'm sitting here watching it. Now I'm looking at a sl- Schlitz malt liquor, bull. It had a bull logo and a bull crashes through. This is 1980, Don Adams commercial. Okay. No way. I feel like now I understand the joke. But, okay, so okay, we should put a link. We had to do too much homework for we, that. We, and we yet, should put a link to the show notes to the Schlitz malt liquor bull beer commercial with Don Adams. He's drinking fe- the. Is this the one featuring the platters and cool in the gang? No. There was a whole campaign. Yeah, it was this a whole is campaign. A whole campaign. This is one where it's it's cool in the gang and the platters and they're singing to each other in a bar right up until the moment that a bull crashes through <laughs> crashes through the door. Yeah. Okay, suddenly it's funnier. Now, if we go back to Heckerling, I don't I still don't think after watching the source material, I still don't think it was directed clearly enough to be able to get this as a joke. Although the camera shaking in it as the beer, the bull's yeah. walking in. I mean, they did they did all their homework. They have the whole they shaky sure cam as the bull comes getting ready to crash it in. No one doesn't like the bull. All yeah. of that sort of stuff. I can see how it was a gag designed around this very particular 80s uh, Schlitz malt liquor <laughs> campaign. One, Schlitz malt liquor with Richard Roundtree. I, okay, so, <laughs> uh, you know, thing. you live and you learn things. And yeah. what we just learned is that real-time research... Uh, we missed the joke because we don't drink malt liquor and we're never advertised as such. Well, and we certainly weren't drink, drinking the malt liquor back in the 80s. And, you know, I yeah. probably had seen these commercials, but really wasn't paying attention other than the funny gag. But again, this goes back to these sorts of of references when you're making this sort of film. There's a fine line between making a joke that can last the test of time and making a joke that hits very specifically with a narrow audience at the moment the film is released. And yeah. um, I think that this film, that, I mean, largely this film does okay with with making jokes that, that can last the test of time. You don't need to have these other references. But when you have something like this, like, we didn't get it. Watching this movie again, I did not understand what that reference was until we just did a little research and found... I found what it's talking about, but it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. Funny, funnier, 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 but still it. not a great 
gag. Still not great. Yeah. yeah. All right. But but going back to Heckerling, I mean, you know, she had said later after this how she was um, looking to do edgier and crazier stuff. But I think that she was probably getting offered these sorts of films um, because she does this. She'll be doing National Lampoon's European Vacation, which we'll be talking about as a member bonus episode for anyone who's interested in signing up to become a member to hear that. She was wanting to do edgier, crazier films, but I think the studio was offering her these sorts of films, and that's what she was taking because that's what she was getting offered. And, uh, you know, I think to that end, it's it's fine. I think that she's it's probably not allowing her to give the best that she could, but it's keeping her working. And so, you know, I can see the frustration that she possibly had um, doing these types of films, but I still think that she's doing a pretty good job with it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, there again, you go back to Steve's favorite uh, uh, tag. Are they? Is it a competent film? Sure, I absolutely think it is. <laughs> I think it's it is competently directed. It's funny. Lots of good jokes. Even the jokes that now don't work are funnier than once you get the the source material. I guess. Um, I, I think it is generally, you know, given all that, generally smartly written. Uh, to get us through and celebrate the the you know the twenties and thirties and the mob uh, all of that stuff uh, makes me smile. Do I wish that it had a little bit more uh, heart by the end? Yeah, yeah, I do, and I I feel like she'd already demonstrated she was capable of that, um, and um, and so you know, here's hoping. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I I really liked the look. I thought they did a good job of giving it that thirties era. And allowing it to kind of have a throwback, kind of almost stagey sort of look. I, I kind of liked that. It yeah. felt almost like a set. You know, I, I thought that was nice. I will say, going speaking to a few directing points, a few things that, that as I watched, I was like, eh, gosh, you could have done a little better on that. The first was when Mary Lou Henner is singing in the nightclub, that uh, I Want to Live Dangerously song that she sings, which is great, as you already pointed out. The follow spot. Like, I don't know if they were intentionally just kind of doing some bad follow spot work, but I'm like, this is a nightclub. It should feel like Mary Lou Henner is going to have that spotlight on her all the times. And it just never felt like completely on her as she kind of wandered the club. That was weirdly annoying to me. Also, when uh, when his uh, brother, when Johnny's brother becomes the DA and Vermin messes with his brakes so that he ends up crashing. The way that that car wreck was shot was just terrible. Like just some slow mo shots of a car kind of like going off a road and hitting a tree and stuff. It's just like this. It felt like somebody who wasn't sure how to shoot that sort of material. I uh, on that point, I I don't have I don't have a I don't have a retort on the car wreck (laughs) point. I I think you're I think you're right. It it was iffy. I, I think it's worth noting, though, the follow spot issue, which to me felt like a joke. And the fact that I saw it as a joke and you didn't know if it was a joke is a sign that it's a joke that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. right that right. that, in fact, Mary Lou Henner is already doing a funny song and having a goofy follow spot that can't keep up with her is a hat on a hat. Like it's too much. And that's a that's a directing choice. Right. Like I, I feel like in order to really get the humor, everything else has to be locked down. And and in this scene, it it wasn't to me. It felt like the clumsy follow was was part of the part of the gag. And um, so I get it. And if you're going to do if you're going to do a clumsy follow as part of the gag, it needs to be a crisp edged 
follow. So you can really see it moving around and you can go, oh, the follow is supposed to follow her, but she's moving so much it couldn't keep up. It's a soft follow. And so it's, it's muddy and the edges just, it doesn't work. And so I don't know if it was the, the, the cinematography, cinematographer's choice or her choice or the way that the, the gaffer put the lights up. I just don't know. It just doesn't work. Thing that does work, uh, writing 1935 on screen. That, I'm telling you, man, oh, that gets me every single time. Th- one of the things that I have never forgotten about this movie, <laughs> it's like that gag right out of the gate. It is so stinking smart and clever, and it works so well. You have 1935 on the screen, a car passes behind it, and then another car comes from the other direction and crashes into the numbers that are in the middle of the street. It's amazing. So well done. Very well it's, done. It's so well, and it's it's just a perfect composite. The fact that the car, when the car drives behind it, you, it doesn't change texture. It doesn't change. It's perfect. It's I know really, maybe yeah. the version I'm watching is just a little soft and degraded, but it's, it, it really looks great. Yeah, it really does. Very funny. Very funny. The name, it turns out, uh, it's not just a funny joke in the movie, uh, dangerously as an adverb. Turns out it's the globe has trouble with it. The whole globe. It turned out that Johnny Dangerously as a title is difficult to translate. And perhaps it is because it's an adverb and it was odd for people to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'll let everybody in on it. It doesn't really make any sense for us either, but that's part of the joke. (laughs) Other titles, though, in France, they called it Johnny Dynamite and same thing in German. Um, Over in Sweden, they called it Johnny Peligroso, which actually sounds Spanish to me. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, And of course, Weird Al. Were you a fan of Weird Al at the time this came out or did your Weird Al love come later? When did... When did you? That is such if a you ever, if you ever loved Weird Al. Thing. I know. I just realized I said that. <laughs> Does everybody love Weird Al? I uh, I may I, I think Weird Al is a quite a figure, aspirational figure that a guy with his kind of humor could find such mainstream popularity across so many different demographics. I, he is a wonder to me. I don't always love his spoofs, but man. When he nails it, he just nails it. And so I, at this time, I I was not really tracking Weird Al. And so when I went back to watch this movie this, you know, yesterday and and last month, uh, I I was kind of blown away. I didn't remember that he did the opening um, song, and it was just a real treat. This uh, really kind of hit about the exact same time that he did his "Eat It" spoof of Michael Jackson's "Beat It." So. He was very much uh, kind of popular, like people would have been hearing him because of that song. And mm-hmm. um, I, so I think that having him doing the title song for the film certainly was something that probably helped them uh, draw in the younger audiences that they were looking for. He, this was big in his Michael Jackson era. Uh, yeah. or, right. I, I feel like I... I went back and watched all the old stuff that we were obviously hearing at the time because you couldn't quite get away from it. But when he did <laughs> Amish Paradise, that's when it really <laughs> hit home that that he was a he's a national treasure. So I came to Weird Al, my my love of Weird Al, very very late. Yeah, yeah. Very Luckily, funny. he's he's like a six decade career guy. <laughs> like, yeah, he's not going anywhere. Oh, I know. No, he still continues cranking stuff out. Great. Yeah. May we live long enough to have Weird Al lampoon our own lives. (laughs) Or at least this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Dare to dream. All right. We're going to be back in a minute to talk about the numbers and everything. Uh, But first, our credits. 
Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by The Bottle Snakes, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at thenumbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If you'd like to catch up with the source interviews for this show, search The Bobby Wygant Archive on YouTube. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for our show. No awards for this film at all, unless you consider the fact that it's on this podcast to be kind of an award. (gasps) Yes, yes. This movie wins the Next Real Podcast Award. That's right. Season 11, episode 3. How did it do at the box office? Uh, For Heckerling's second feature film, she did have a bigger budget than before. $9 million uh, for this period comedy. That is $22 million in today's dollars. The movie was released in the holiday window, December 21st, 1984, opposite Disney's Pinocchio re-release, Protocol, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, Mickey and Maud, The Flamingo Kid, The River, and Birdie. Very busy time. And I, it was probably Breakin' 2 that I was actually watching yeah, in theaters. Yeah, 100%. At well, th- well, this played in theaters for a long time, keeping the grosses trickling in for just over a year. It never did get higher than 10th place, which is where it opened in its first week. Considering its surprisingly long release, though, it, the film did make a profit, earning $17.1 million at the box office, or $42.1 million in today's dollars. That was good news for Fox, which, as I said, had been having a mighty struggle at the box office all year. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finishment of $222,000, certainly enough for Heckerling to prove her box office medal. Okay, tell me the honest-to-God truth. When you hear a movie with a certain rhythm that ends in two, do you still, to this day, follow it up with Electric Boogaloo? All the time. All the time? Yeah. This is possibly the best sequel subtitle of any movie in the history of movies ever of all time. Hallelujah. Amen. I probably have even said it with The Godfather. Godfather 2, Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo. Absolutely. As you do, (laughs) Electric Boogaloo. It just works. It just trips off the tongue. That is amazing. And now I really want to do the Breakin' movies. I was just thinking that. Why haven't we talked about Breakin' and Breakin' (laughs) 2? Especially because we get some good Keaton stand-in uh, breakdancing in this movie. <laughs> we certainly we do. didn't even acknowledge that. There is some good Keaton uh, stand-in breakdancing. Right. Talking about uh, jokes that uh, that are dated. Although, yeah, you know, true, totally. when you see somebody doing that, I don't know. Like, even today, it's just kind of funny, even if you don't get that it was a very big thing in the mid-80s. This is the thing about breakdancing, is that it is hard to do. Like, it's oh, yes. objectively difficult to do. When they stand on their heads and do that thing, terrible for your hair. Uh, <laughs> and yet, it. why is it so, why is it so easy to laugh at, at that? Why is that funny? Right. I still find, I find breakdancing an element of comedy. And it shouldn't be. It's an athletic exercise. I recognize that. It's because it looks so particular. It is. Yeah. Su- it has such a very specific way that they do it that it ends up. But it's like pop locking now. It's like you do something really funky. It's super cool. It's really hard to do. But yeah, it's probably easy to make fun of all the same. <laughs>
Do you do you do a lot of pop locking? Oh, I, I pop lock all. I'm doing it right now, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! To everybody who is not watching the live stream, <laughs> woof! Podcasting is uh, seriously better for audio. All right, hey, uh, that's it. That's that's our number three. Where this is, we're over the hump, and uh, it's. It, I find this a real treat. I I think it was a a great. Uh, rewatch after way too long and i'm so glad to have it back in the collection i have to say i'm a little jealous that you have seen it twice in the last month and i've only watched it once i may have to watch it sooner rather than later because i i just found myself laughing constantly on my rewatch i I just have to bring up as another funny bit that i laughed way more than i probably should have when johnny was at the end walking with the priest on death row and the priest who is not a priest, but is pretending to be a priest so that he could deliver a piece of this Tommy gun to to Johnny. As the priest is delivering his last rites to Johnny as he's walking, and he just is making up his Latin. <laughs> Summa cum laude, magna cum laude, the radio's too laude. Just like going on and on. And it's it's kind of like the background din, but uh, I just yeah. like listening to that. I was just in stitches. Dominus obisco, obisco. Espiritus Sancto. Te Gustavus. So long, Johnny. Me Gustavus. You bet. You Gustavus. We missed the bus. They missed the bus. Be brave, huh, Johnny? When's the next bus? Always nails. Summer come laude. Magnum come laude. The radio's too laude. Attested Fidelis. Semper Fidelis. High Fidelis. Why didn't I take shot? Post Meridian. Anti Meridian. Uncle Meridian. Oh, the little meridians. Goodbye, Johnny. Bye, Rock. The Magna Carta. Master Charger. Spit in his eye, Johnny. Doom Pro Kellis. Bed, Rabbi. Lots of Vitalis. I just, I That's loved it. it. It was just, a, this works for me, and I had a great time watching it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everybody, we will be back with our ratings in just a moment. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Martha Coolidge's 1985 film, Real Genius. Have you watched it? We want to know what you thought. Send us your thoughts in a 30-second audio clip, and we just might get your review in the next episode. Send your 30-second audio clip to reviews at truestory.fm. When Chris makes the scientific discovery of the century, you did it. His classmates want the credit. You're not number one around here anymore. His professor wants the publicity. Uh, and the military wants to use his discovery as the ultimate weapon. This is not good. So Chris is about to turn getting even into a science. And show them. Roger. Open bomb bay doors. They should never try to outsmart. A real genius. All right, uh, letterboxed. Andy, it's time to to dish. How do you how do you approach this movie in your letterbox catalog? Where do you where do you put it? This sort of film is always very difficult for me because I just want to say, you know, four and a half stars. It made me laugh constantly. It was it was awesome. 
you know, it has its issues, and I do acknowledge that it's not uh, it's not as solid as I would like it to be. I'm going to give it three and a half, um, but if I could, I would give it two hearts. I think that's where I'm going to sit. I know I can only give it three one, and a half but Letterbox, give me a chance to give it more hearts because I I just really love this movie. And uh, you know, I, again, I know that it's the time, but three and a half and two hearts. At three and a half, that takes it to seven on the IMDb scale. So it is soaring over the six star bar, uh, which is great. I uh, I think I'm with you, but in lieu of two hearts, because I, unlike you, recognize the physical and digital limitations of Letterboxd as a platform <laughs> that we only have one heart. Yes. I think I'm going to give it one, just one heart, the most hearts available and allowed, but four stars. Can you believe it? This is going to be a four star movie for me. It's oh, that see, fun. It is that fun. And now I'm like, gosh, should I do the same? Because I, you know, should I take my second heart and make it a four-star film? I'm going make to. Make it a half star? I'm going to. You are? To. You're going to do it? I'm doing it. Because I, <laughs> I love this movie. It just made me laugh so much. I felt so happy and full of joy watching it all over again. So, so there, everybody. Oh four God. stars and a heart from the next real team. Out standing all yeah. right well don't forget to send us your uh, uh send us your review of uh the next movie uh and but right now we need you to uh jump into the show talk channel over in our discord uh and come talk to us about johnny dangerously because that's where we're going to be talking about johnny dangerously that's over right. on discord we want to know what you thought everybody so hop in there and let us know when the movie ends our conversation begins Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always do it. Oh, man. Sometimes I feel dirty <laughs> mining bad reviews from other people in Letterbox. They're just, they're just not very nice. People can be nasty. Yes, they can. They, they really, really can. I do have one, though. Uh, I would like to start with a half star. Ooh. If, if half. I, it's a half star from uh, Brianna Justice. And I... I like this one. I think it has the sort of nuance that Johnny Dangerously demands. And also, I would say, it sounds like the context in which she was watching the movie was perfect for actually taking in the kind of comedy <laughs> that Heckerling and crew was trying to deliver. And so uh, here we go. I love the Half setup. star from Brianna Justice. I saw this with a couple of stoners who hadn't seen it since they were children. Overall, it was, in a word, exquisite. <laughs> that makes me laugh so much. That's so true. I, so true. You know, I need more stoners in my life today. Indeed. To watch movies. You know what? We should find some stoners and watch Dune. The, the Denny <laughs> Dune that's coming out. Denny Dune with some stoners. Here we go. What do you got? All right. I've got one and a half star by Jabba Jabba, who has this to say about the film. Michael Keaton has so much mascara and eyeliner on that I cannot focus on anything else. It's a Tim Curry or David Bowie level of eye makeup. The female actresses in the movie all have either less makeup on their eyes than he does, or they have the exact same makeup, which makes it even more distracting. Some lame comedy flops about, and then there's some more eyeliner. There's a few laughs, but there's a lot more than that just doesn't work. Ugh, but so much eyeliner. <laughs> yeah, the eyeliner was rough. Oh, well, what are you going to do? 
Thanks, Letterboxd. My mother grabbed me once. Once. You shouldn't hang me on a hook. My father hung me on a hook once. Once. You shouldn't kick me in the balls. My sister kicked me in the balls once. You shouldn't shoot me, Johnny. My grandmother shot me once. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we are going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 11, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, our big 10th anniversary season featuring all female directors. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Horror debuts. I'm already stumped. Oh, wait, uh, The Lure. Wasn't that based on The Little Mermaid? It was. Nice. Very loosely, at least. Um, how about 10th anniversaries? Hmm. That's a tough one. So 2011 films. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Yep, that was it. Spike Lee's member bonus, another biopic. Malcolm X. Nice. We have covered a lot of great movies that started as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Awakenings, Wild at Heart, The Virgin Suicides. Queen of Katwe or Clueless. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.